Um, if you've, um, you know, if you've travelled abroad to different countries and to different cultures, you 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 realise that that other people don't live like we do, and other people have different kind of customs and different. Uh, different ways of, of behaving. And if you go and live in, there, in that culture, you have to start kind of picking up on those things and behaving appropriately. I remember um, about 10 years ago going to uh, Burkina Faso. On an, uh, it was, uh, we were training um, pastors to run the Alpha course. And uh, in England, when you're training people to run the Alpha course, one of the things you're always kind of emphasising is, what, you know, when you're teaching, it's really important to, you know, to make eye contact with people and to kind of be engaged with them. And uh, so we were kind of teaching this and then discovered that uh, in, in Burkina Faso, in that culture, uh, the, one of the ways in which you show respect to your elders is by not looking them in the eye and not looking them in the face. So we were kind of busily, you know, saying, well, you've, you've got to look people in the eye. And then no one was doing that because if you're teaching from the front, no one will make eye contact with you as a sign of, you know, as a sign of respect. And uh, when I go to Pakistan... Uh, one thing that you would, one of the things that you know that we do in England without much thinking about it is you, if you meet someone of the opposite sex, you know, presumably you know them a little bit at least. Uh, you know, you wouldn't think much of you know giving them a hug and uh, as a kind of welcome. Well, in Pakistan, you would never, you would never um, greet someone of the opposite sex in that way. You would never hug a woman. That would just be completely disrespectful. If it was, a, if it's a Christian then you could stand side by side and put an arm round, you know, round their shoulder, but you would, it would just be unthinkable. To, so you kind of pick up these things and you learn to live in, in a different kind of world, in a different kind of space. And we've reached a point in Luke's Gospel where there's a, kind of, there's a clash of cultures that is, is just becoming more and more evident. And it's because of the fact that we live, you know, we live in this world, but Jesus has brought a different kingdom uh, into it. In uh, John's Gospel, John chapter 18, verse 36, when Jesus is on trial, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. Jesus is the king of a different kind of kingdom. Uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 1, verse 13. What's the difference that Jesus has made to us when we come to him. Paul says he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. As soon as you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you start to live in a different kind of kingdom. You become a citizen of heaven. So we're still living in this world, but we're no longer of it. In Jesus's great prayer in John's gospel, John chapter 17 This is what he prays for us. Chapter 17, verse 14. I have given them your words and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. When we start to follow Jesus, things change. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth for your word is truth. So Jesus has a different kingdom and Jesus brings his kingdom to bear in this world. And when we start to follow Jesus Christ, we start to live in that kingdom. And so there's this continual clash between the way of living in this world and the way of living in the kingdom of God. And our reading this morning just begins to highlight 
uh, some of this. So Jesus's enemies are trying to trip him up. They're trying to find some way to, uh, to accuse him. They're trying to find some way of condemning him. And uh, we've seen it already at the beginning of this chapter, and now here it is again, uh, that the Pharisees send spies to try and catch him. And if you look at the same episode in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 22, verse 15, uh, we get a bit more detail. The Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. So the Pharisees and the Herodians are in league together. Now, this is not a marriage made in heaven. Normally, the Pharisees and the Herodians would would hate each other. The Pharisees are zealots for God's law. And one of the things that they are zealous for is the fact that there is only one king, and that king is Yahweh. And what they are zealous for is that God should reestablish Israel as a theocracy, They don't want to live under any earthly kind of king. They want to live with God as their king. They want to live in a theocracy. That's what they are passionate for. And one of the things that they loathe is paying this tax. There are various taxes that need to be paid. And the tax that you used, that you paid with a denarius was the poll tax. Some of us are old enough to remember the poll tax riots of the 1980s. Because the poll tax, it's not a, an income tax, it's not VAT, it was, it was a tax on the person. If you were a person, you had to pay the tax. And people loathed it, and there were poll tax riots, and it was one of the reasons Maggie Thatcher ended up losing her power, and Michael Heseltine had to come up with something better. The council tax, which is not much better, but it was better than the poll tax. So anyway, there we go, we're still paying it now. But anyway, people hated the poll tax, and this was a poll tax that the Romans demanded. Now, if you were a Roman king, one of the ways in which you established your authority was by printing coins. Uh, And as soon, even if you were a pretender to a throne, one of the ways in which you would begin to establish your credentials was by uh, printing coinage. Because on the coinage is your image and your description. So Caesar has printed coins that have his image on and they have his inscription. And his inscription says, Caesar, son of God. So you can imagine the Pharisees are not best pleased having to pay this thing. And it's a poll tax. And if you were a woman between the ages of 12 and 65, or a man between the ages of 14 and 65, you had to pay it. I don't know why women had to start paying two years earlier, but they did. So if you're a girl at the age of 12, every year you have to pay this tax, this denarius. Now, if you're a Pharisee, you loathe paying this thing. Because because it's a symbol of the fact that There is an earthly king, Caesar, reigning over you. But all you want is for God to be your king. So for the Pharisees and Herodians to be in league together is, you know, it's just because they they both hate Jesus. And so they're happy to get in league together. So they think they've sprung a brilliant trap. Because however Jesus answers, he's going to be in trouble. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? If he says yes, then the Pharisees will go, huh, well, you're not much of an Israelite, are you? You can't possibly be the Messiah, because when the Messiah comes, what's he going to do? He's going to kick the Romans out. So if you're saying we should pay this tax, well, you're collaborating with the Romans. And so they hope it will discredit Jesus in the eyes of the Jews and he'll be condemned that way. If he says, no, I don't think we should have it, then the Herodians will pounce on him. 
as an insurrectionist and have him arrested and carted off. So they think this is brilliant. They're so pleased with themselves that they've come up with this great trap that Jesus can't get out of. And what does Jesus say? He sees through their duplicity. He says, show me a denarius. So he's kind of, um, he's kind of got them anyway, because what, if they hate this thing so much, why are they carrying it around with them and why are they actually using it? So the fact that they can produce a denarius from their pocket is, is, is a bit embarrassing, really, because they're trying to catch Jesus out on the fact that he's paying this. And he's like, oh, oh, we've actually got one. Oops. So he says, show me a denarius. Whose portrait and inscription are on it? Caesar's. And here's the, here's, here's the punchline. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. So if you're a king and you print coinage, the very fact that you do that gives you the right to claim some of it back in tax. That's how it works. So if you use the coin and you carry it around with you, you acknowledge the fact that you have to give some of it back in tax. That's accepted. That's what it goes. So Jesus is basically saying, look, you live in this world. There are taxes that you have to pay. That's fine. There is a king. He has the right to uh, get some of this money back in taxation. There's no problem with that. If it's got his imprint on it, then technically... It all belongs to him anyway. So if he asks for some of it back, don't sweat it. Give some of it back. So there's something about for us as uh, citizens living in the world, uh, we should be the best citizens who live in any nation. We should be the the best citizens who live in this country. We should be the most uh, law-abiding. We should be the most scrupulous in paying our taxes and not trying to get out of paying our taxes. In any nation, we should be the best citizens that there are because we do live in a material world. We do have governments who rule over us. Uh, We do have governments that, when they're working at their best, provide things for people who are in need. And we should be as much part of that as anybody else. So Jesus says, don't worry about it. If Caesar wants his taxes, pay them. But give to God what is God's? We don't just live in this world. We're citizens already of the kingdom of heaven. And actually the, the kingdom of heaven has a greater call on our lives than the kingdoms of this world, which, as we'll see, will often bring us into conflict. Because the challenge for the Pharisees and the challenge for us is, are we giving to God what is God's? The coin has an image stamped on it and has an inscription. The image is that of Caesar. The inscription is son of God. We give that back to him. But what's the image and what's the inscription that we bear? As human beings, what's the image that's stamped on us? Well, it's the image of God. If you know your book of Genesis, which I'm sure you do. uh, God says, chapter 1, verse 26, let us make Man in our image, in our likeness, let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we bear the image of God. Now the coin has Caesar's image on it and that means he can claim it back. Well, we bear the image of God. Which means God wants to claim us back. Are we giving to God what is God's? What's the inscription that we bear? Well, think about uh, Jesus' baptism. 
Now, when Jesus was baptised, the father spoke from heaven. And what does the father say to his son? He says, you are my son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. You're my son, my beloved, with whom I'm well pleased. So if we know the Lord Jesus, if we've accepted the Lord Jesus as our saviour, then not only do we bear his image, but we also have that inscription stamped on us. God says, you are my son, you are my daughter, who I love, with you I'm well pleased. So if that's the image and that's the inscription that we bear... How are we giving to God what is God's? And are we giving to God what is God's? The challenge for the Pharisees and what Jesus has called them out on so many times before is they talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. They say that they're obeying God's laws. They say they're passionate obeying God's laws. And then at the same time, they're trying to find every which way to get around them. And Jesus is always calling them out. He says, you talk, you say you know, you're giving to God what is God's, but you're not actually doing it. And the same for us. Are we really giving to God, giving back to him what is his? Jesus says that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. Well, on the average day, how much do we love the Lord God with all our all? It's that word, isn't it? All. If only it said some. That would be all right, wouldn't it? Or a bit. We could kind of, yeah, that would be all right. We could sleep happily. But he says, no, all. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. In other words, 100%. This is the challenge that Jesus is presenting to them. He's saying, live as the best possible citizen that you can in this world. But also remember that you're a citizen of heaven and you have a greater allegiance to God, because he's stamped his image on you and he's given you an inscription that supersedes that of Caesar. Are we giving to God everything that he is worthy of? When we wake up in the morning, do we think to ourselves, today I want to live a life that will glorify God. Today I want to live a life that will reflect his image. Today I want to live a life that will please him. Today I want to give to God what is his? That's the challenge for us. And sometimes it will lead us into conflict. Uh, just a couple of examples. Remember the, the story of Esther in the Old Testament. And uh, uh, the, the challenge against uh, uh, Mordecai. Let me just read from Esther chapter 3. Uh, King Xerxes honoured Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite. Elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman. For the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behaviour would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour, he was enraged. And if you, you, know the, you, know, you know the story, it ends up not just with Mordecai being condemned to death, but with the entire Jewish race condemned to death because they won't submit to Haman. They won't submit to this secular worldly authority that his first... Allegiance is to God. So 
Mordecai is wanting to live as the best citizen that he can. He wants to be a good citizen. He doesn't want to undermine the nation in which he lives. He doesn't want to undermine secular authority. But when it conflicts with the authority of God, which is his first call, he won't do it. Such a challenge to us in in our day where increasingly to, uh, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ brings us into conflict with the things of this world. Will we be as bold as Mordecai to say, I won't do it? Uh, Daniel, a bit further on in the, in the New Testament again, uh, just is a good citizen. He's taken into the Babylonian court and with his friends, he is, he is instructed, he is trained how to function in the Babylonian court. And he does it brilliantly, which is why he's put into such an exalted place. He wants to be the very best citizen that he can be, but he won't eat the food. Because the food has been sacrificed to idols and it's been offered up. And Daniel resolved, uh, Daniel chapter 1 verse 8, resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. He asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favour and sympathy to Daniel. Uh, But the official told him, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other men of your age? The king would then have my head because of you. And uh, Daniel says, uh, no, test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food. At the end of that 10 days, they look healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So again, Daniel, he wants to be the best possible citizen that he can be, but he puts God first. And sometimes that brings him into conflict and it could cost him his life as it could have cost Mordecai's life. But they stand firm. They won't compromise. Here's the challenge for us in in our world, which is increasingly secular. Will we put God first? Will we put God's word first, whatever it may cost? That's the challenge. Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God to God, what is God's? Are we, will we be resolute in doing that? Will we give everything that we are to God and not hold anything back? That's what Jesus calls the Pharisees out on. And he calls us out on it as well if we're seeking to follow him. Will we give him everything that is rightfully his? And then it goes on. So the Pharisees and the Herodians have failed. Uh, so they kind of give up. And now the, the verse 27, the Sadducees come in. And again, you know, all these people, the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees don't like each other. The Pharisees and the Herodians don't. You know, none of them like each other, but they found common cause. So now the Sadducees come in. So the Sadducees are different from the Pharisees. The Pharisees are zealous for God's law. Uh, the Sadducees are basically zealous for themselves. So they're, they're, they're the kind of ruling class of, um, of Israel. The high priests come from the Sadducees. Uh, but basically, they, they're living very comfortably, thank you very much. And they're doing very well, thank you much, out of collaborating with the Romans. And they don't want anyone upsetting things and rocking the boat. So that's why they hate Jesus, because they can kind of see if Jesus keeps saying the things that he's saying, um, the, you know, the Romans in the end are just going to come and flatten Jerusalem, which is what they do in AD 70. So, so they want to get rid of Jesus. So they come in at a different angle and they have this nice little story about uh, resurrection, because they don't believe in the resurrection. 
Uh, that's, why, uh, that's why at the end, there's this lovely thing where the, you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're all trying to get rid of Jesus. And then the Pharisees can't help themselves because in verse 39 at the end, where Jesus has talked about the resurrection with the Pharisees, do believe in the Pharisees, you know, they're, they're trying to get rid of Jesus and then they, they can't help themselves. They say, oh, well said, teacher. And they're like, oh, whoops, didn't mean to say that. We're trying to get rid of him. But he's better than, anyway, he's better than the Sadducees. So the Sadducees, they don't believe in the resurrection. So how's this going to work? There's, um, uh, there's a man who gets married and his wife dies. He has six, uh, six brothers. The law says if the wife dies, the brother, um, uh, the wife must marry the next one. And, and so it continues. Uh, so they go through all the brothers. First one married a woman who died childless, then the second, then the third. So here's their question. And what they're trying to say is belief in resurrection is ridiculous. Because if you've got one man and seven wives, how is that going to be split up? And the, sorry, one wife and seven husbands in heaven, who gets the wife? So the Sadducees are like, huh, get out of that one. Doesn't make sense. It's ridiculous. And again, clash of cultures, clash of the way that we think. We have to learn to think, not in the terms of this world, but we have to learn to think as citizens of heaven. What we're looking forward to is so different from this world and this life, it's unimaginable. Uh, Jesus says, verse 34, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage. Again, if you look at the version in Matthew's gospel, we get a little bit more detail. Because uh, in Matthew 22, verse 29, uh, Jesus says, uh, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. He says, you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. And if you understood those things, you wouldn't have asked this ridiculous question. So what do the scriptures tell us? Well, Jesus points that out in verse 37 and verse 38 of our reading this morning from Luke 20. Uh, He says, in the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise. For he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him who all are alive. Now, the Sadducees, um, they had issues with quite a lot of the Old Testament, but they did take very seriously the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. So this is part of the scripture that they would have uh, given authority to. And Jesus says, well, the scripture says, the scripture says that God is the God of the living. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are alive. Well, if they're alive, then there must be a resurrection. But more than that, Jesus says, you don't understand the power of God. You don't understand the power of God. Remember the beginning of Genesis. What was there in the beginning? There was just God. In the beginning, God. And then God spoke and spoke creation into being, spoke material things into being. And not just inanimate material things into being but God spoke life into being one of the problems for atheism is explaining how something came from nothing how do you get something from nothing atheism has no answer atheists are desperately trying to find an answer to that question how do you get something from nothing well you can't which is why in the beginning God even more difficult for atheism is how do you get life from non-life Without a cause. How does life suddenly spring from a rock? Without any cause. In the beginning, God. 
Well, if God can speak material things into being and if God can speak life into being, then surely resurrection is a bit of a walk in the park. To take a a dead body and put life back into it, that's not an issue. So if you understand the scriptures and the power of God, resurrection's not a problem. We have to think differently, think as citizens of heaven. Jesus says, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. There's no marriage in heaven. That's going to take a lot of stress out of things, isn't it? No marriage in heaven. There's no marriage in heaven. So you've got to think, well, why? Why is there no marriage in heaven? This, this is actually really important. Well, why is there no marriage in heaven? We don't need marriage because we're going to live forever. So if people are going to live forever, you don't need to have children. Because we're going to live forever. We need to have children in this age. Otherwise, we'll, just, we'll run out of people. So we need to have children to keep repopulating. Uh, we've, we've got a bit enthusiastic about it and now we're overpopulating. But... Um, you know, we need to have children, we need to, but in heaven we don't need that. So we don't need marriage, which tells us something very significant about the purpose of marriage. The purpose of marriage is to provide a place where children can be raised in the image of God. So if you don't need to do that anymore, you don't need, you don't need marriage. Marriage is this gift that God, I was just reading, um, I get an email um, every week from the Christian Institute with just kind of an update on how bonkers our world is becoming. And uh, the email that came on Friday was, um, it was a notification from the uh, civil service, from the civil service, basically identifying that there are, at least it's not a fixed number, there are at least a hundred different genders, at least a hundred different genders that need to be acknowledged and recognised and respected. So there's like a whole... Just a, just a whole thing of accommodating. Uh, basically, uh, the number of genders is infinite because you can, you can be whatever, whatever gender you want. However you want to frame that, however you want to describe it, you know, the sky is the limit. That's the world we live in, apparently. Well, my Bible tells me there are just the two Male and female, he created them. Now, when you think about marriage, you think about children, you realise why God has designed it this way. Because, because when a man and a woman come together, you get the whole image of God. There's this beautiful story of, in, you know, in Genesis where you know, God has created Adam and then, Ad- and then he creates all the other animals. And then God is looking for a companion for Adam and they go through all the animals. And what does he say? It couldn't find, couldn't find a suitable helper for Adam. So what does, you know, what does God do? God doesn't create female woman as a separate entity. Because what God has done, he's put the whole of himself into Adam. He's like done the whole, you know, it's a job lot. Like everything of the image of God is in Adam. So how does, how does God create a companion for Adam? Well, he just, he splits Adam in half. He splits Adam in half. It's the same ingredients, kind of, but mixed up differently. So in general, men are different from women. 
which is probably not a very popular thing to say these days, but in general, it's true. I've noticed. In general, we are different from each other. We have different, you know, you know different qualities and, you know, we're different. And it's God's design that because of that, we are drawn to the opposite sex. That's how God has designed it. And marriage is this beautiful lifelong union of male and female coming together. So the whole image of God is then given to the child that is born into the security of that relationship. Now, of course, we've messed it up. Sin has messed it all up. Our relationships are messy. They don't work out. We, there's all sorts of things that go wrong in relationships and, and, and in marriage and things fall apart. But you've got to start from God's design rather than, well, this is the mess that we've made. So let's just tidy it all under the carpet and not ignore it. God's design is for marriage as the place where children can be born and discover the image of God. That he has created. And the wonderful thing that in God's love there is, there is grace and there's forgiveness and there's redemption. Because we do mess it up and marriages don't last and things go wrong. And, there's, a, and there's, there's all of that. But as I discovered a few years ago, one of the most beautiful things that God ever says to us is, is I still love you. Let's start from here. Wherever you're at, that's God's opening Opening words, if you're in a mess, I still love you. Let's start from here. So, so I've kind of digressed a bit and um, jumped on a little hobby horse there, but don't worry about that. But that's why there's no marriage in heaven, because you don't need marriage in heaven. Not needed anymore. It served its purpose. Neither marriage will be given away. They will no longer die. They will no longer die. Isn't that beautiful? When we know Christ, we will no longer die. We'll be like the angels. We are God's children, children of the resurrection. That's the hope that we have. So we need to learn to live differently in this world and in this life. We need to realise that in Christ we are already citizens of heaven. And therefore we need to think differently. We need to live as the best possible citizens that we can um, in this nation or whatever nation that we, you know, where we live. We want to be the best citizens. Unless that comes into conflict with our citizenship of heaven, which takes precedence. And, um, and Jesus didn't spell out what that will look like in every generation and in every age. He just said, live as a good citizen of earth and live as a good citizen of heaven and work out what that looks like. And uh, that's what we have to do in our age is work out, well, what's it look like for me to give to Caesar what is Caesar's? I'll pay my taxes as a good citizen. I'll obey the law as far as I can when it doesn't conflict with God's law. But I'll put God first and I'll love him first. And I'll give him my whole heart and mind and strength. So that's the challenge for us this morning. Is to give to God what is his. If you're in Christ then you reflect his image. If you're in Christ, then he's said to you, you're my son, my daughter, whom I love with you, I'm well pleased. And we need to give him everything that we are. So let's pray for a moment and then we're going to close with a, uh, with a final hymn. But um, 